Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, listeners. Kevin and I need your help. Yes, we need your help. Please, please, please. We need your stars. We need your reviews, you guys, on iTunes so we can start to climb those iTunes rating charts. It's simple. Open iTunes, click on the iTunes store, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Then click on Ratings and Reviews. Under the Customer Reviews, click Write a Review. Then let us know what you think from one to five stars. If you need some help, think of one star being Carol Channing and Paul Lynn in the road company of the last five years, <laughs> and five stars being free front row tickets to Hamilton. <laughs> Although, when you think about it, I actually would give five stars to the road company of Carol Channing and Paul in the last five years, because I think that would be uh, awesome. I would love to hear, can I hear Moving Too Fast as Paul? <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the one I really want. She's the chick's the goddess. <laughs> and through Erica Schwartz and Danica Weiss and the Handelman twins. <laughs> So there you go. You can also leave a comment if you like. That's it. That's reviews. it. Send us Thank your reviews, you. friends. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to our podcasts on Broadway World and Stitcher. Today's guest is one of the most accomplished press agents in the history of Broadway, and if you read her brilliant book, Backstage Pass to Broadway, True Tales from a Theater Press Agent, you will see that sometimes what happens offstage is more dramatic than what happens on stage. <laughs> it's true. Her remarkable career has included such highlights as trying to tame Zero Mostel, dancing with Bob Fosse, defending Mary Martin, and defeating David Merrick. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Raul Julia, George C. Scott, Ronald Reagan, and to be friends with the Fonz... Here is Susan L. Shulman. Hi. Welcome. Hi, Susan. I just, my Hi. head turned like eight times with those names. <laughs> Jeez, you knew Mine everybody. Too. <laughs> Gosh. So for I must our li- be old. I, no. God. Wise. We're, wise. Yes. We're wise. wise and legendary. We like to say we're legendarily wise. I'm now, for, for our listeners who aren't familiar with what your job does. What exactly is the definition? How would you define? Which well, I'm sure you've been asked over and over I again. Have. Yes, and the truth is nobody knows what a press agent does. That's the funny thing. I always laugh and say it's smiling and nodding uh-huh. at, at an opening night or to critics. It's hi, thanks for coming, enjoy the show. Hi, thanks for coming, enjoy the show. Hi, thanks for coming, enjoy the show. <laughs> but the truth is, what we do is we create the right expectations, both for an audience and for critics. Mm-hmm. So, if you you're handling an Ibsen play. 
you don't really want to say it's a laugh riot. You know, it's not a knee slapper. It's a drama. And so you really have to, the press agent's job is to create the right expectation. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll give you an example. You want an example? Yes, please. Okay, you mentioned the adorable Bob Fosse, who I I did, in fact, dance with, not on stage, but I did dance with Bob Fosse. I love that. Um, Bob Fosse was doing a show called Dancing. Yes. Wonderful show. He always, he always, um, took his shows to Boston before they came to New York. That was his tryout town. He respected the critics there. He respected the audiences there. He felt they gave him real feedback on what he put on the stage, and and he appreciated that. When the show uh, started in Boston, he talked about how it was a review. It was a bunch of dance numbers he wanted to put on stage before he got too old, is the way he put it. Uh, It was never a book musical. It wasn't like Sweet Charity or... Chicago. It didn't have a book. Right. It wasn't supposed to have a book. It never intended to have a book. Um, and the show opened in Boston, and it got okay reviews, but they were unhappy because there was no book. And they kept saying, there's no book, there's no thread, there's no story. Well, there wasn't supposed to be. But somehow we hadn't communicated that. We hadn't managed to put that out there in, in an interesting enough way that both the audiences and the critics had the right expectation. Wow. Yeah. And so... It was like we gave them apples instead of oranges, yeah. and they they were expecting like, oranges. Hey, where's my oranges? That's yeah, right. No. And they and no matter how good the apples were, they didn't want the apples. They wanted the oranges. So before it opened in New York, which was about I would say ninety ninety five percent the same show, because he always tinkered and fiddled and fixed things, and he could do it better than anybody. Yeah. We really sat down with him and we said, "Listen, you're going to do a Sunday Times, what's called a pre opening reader, a Sunday Times feature in the Arts and Leisure section." And it's very important you talk about how there's no theme, there's no story, there's no thread. It's just a bunch of dance numbers on stage. And he did. And the Sunday Times piece came out. And, of course, it's read by theater critics as well as by the audience, yeah. general right. public. And the show opened, as I say, pretty much the same show that had opened in Boston with Tinkering. And the critics said, it's fabulous. There's no thread. There's no storyline. There's no book. (laughs) Because this time their expectations were met. They're like, we love oranges. It was just, it was a perfect example of having the right expectations and then meeting them. Now, of course, he could meet them better than anybody. So, you know, it was about Vasi. But even so, the fact is that we hadn't quite gotten it right in Boston. And by New York, we did. And so that's what I mean about cre- creating the right expectations. Incredible. And yeah. so as a press agent, you have relationships not only with producers and directors of the Broadway shows, but you have relationships with papers and with, with media outlets. Of course, and with yes. All of, I never even thought that. Yes, of course you know every single reviewer uh, you know, of the New York Times. Well, or I mean, whoever. you know, I always think we're all in this together. Yes. Because we all see everything and we all, you know, but I'm not sure critics think that. Mm-hmm. But I think that because mm-hmm. I think it, at the end of the day, we're all in this business because we love it. Right. And we're not in it to make money because we could all make a lot more money doing something else. Sure. And that's true of critics as well yeah. and, and journalists. So I think that we're all in it because deep in our hearts, you know, we love the theater. Right. And so when I say we're all in this together, that's kind of what I mean. Of course, sometimes it's not, we're not on the same side. You know, right. it's sure. like anything. What do you think makes a good theater critic? Wow. That's a good question. First of all, they have to love the theater. Yeah. And I'm always surprised when somebody is hired to be a theater critic who brings no theater experience to the table. It's like shocking to me that that, that happens and it does. Um, obviously, they have to be a good journalist, but I think they really need to love it. And and I'm not sure everybody does anymore. Uh, of course, nowadays they're bumping off theater critics. You know, so many of the major newspapers have cut their 
their theater critic, which is shocking and and horrible. Sad. Very sad. Did you always know that you were going to get involved in a theatrical career? I grew up in New York. Mm -hmm. I was a theater kid. I used to hang out at stage doors. And I didn't want... I really didn't want anybody's autograph. I wanted to tell them how much they had impacted my life. Mm. So That's awesome. I know. Where, where were you, some of your first stage doors that you would oh go to? Oh, my God. Who, I went to, oh, to oh, everybody. I mean, Man of La Mancha. You know, and sometimes people would befriend me, and they would be nice to me, and they yeah. would say, do you want to see the set, or do you want to come backstage? And, oh. and, but I was a little kid. I mean, I was like in high school. And I really, I really didn't want that. I didn't care if I got their autograph. I just wanted to sort of say, I, that was so moving to yeah. me. You know, you changed my life or whatever. And, or I'd write them letters. I would write, that's how I started with Mary Martin. I wrote her a, le- a fan letter and she answered. And so I wrote her another letter and she answered. And I wrote another letter and she answered. And this went on until she died. And I, I didn't know till years later that there were like a million people that did that. <laughs> I thought right. I was the only one who wrote fan <laughs> letters. What did I know? Back when people really did. But, write but that they letters. answered, you yeah. know, or they, or I'd say, I'm coming to see your show on such and such date. Um, could I uh, meet you? This was before people had lined up outside stage doors. You sure. know, right. they didn't do any of that stuff. Barricades and stuff. It wasn't like even for big big stars. It wasn't except for you know like Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor, but not yeah. for most most Broadway stars. And so I would sometimes they would leave my name at the stage door after a, after a matinee, and I would you know get invited back. And it was just because I wrote a nice letter. I wasn't. I didn't want anything. I didn't. You know, I had no axe to grind or anything. Right. I wasn't like. You know, I wasn't going to sell it or anything. Yeah, I, just yeah. was, I was just a little fan. The love of theater, yeah. yeah. I, and I guess they knew that. You know, I guess it it was communicated in some way because it was genuine. It right. wasn't. I had no agenda, and so I I loved it. I went to shows all the time, but I didn't see any way that I could ever be part of it. I couldn't. You never imagine. saw yourself as a performer. You never I think thought. Maybe I, I'll I used act. to. I used to do you know shows and summer stock and college and stuff, but. I think in my heart I knew I wasn't good enough. I knew I wasn't tough enough. I was always sort of a big fish in a little pond. You know, I'd get discovered once a year and some agent would say, oh, here's my card, and then nothing would happen. You know, but I think I always knew I wasn't tough enough. But I couldn't imagine how I could be part of it. I came from a family of educators and entrepreneurs. Nobody ever was in the theater. Nobody had anything to do with the theater. But they supported the arts, Oh, they took me to the theater. I mean, from the time I was five, my parents took me to Broadway shows. So I loved it. And they loved it, too. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't a career. You know, it wasn't what you, you know, you you grew up and you became, uh, you know, a teacher or a doctor or something else. You know, you didn't become press agent <laughs> that wasn't one of the lists on the list <laughs> but the the um i i couldn't imagine how i could be part of it i just was a fan and i loved it and i i read everything and i knew everything and i knew all the players i knew the names of everybody you know and what happened was when i was in college i by instinct not because i even knew what i was doing i was kind of the one beating the bushes for plays. I was always the one coming up with schemes for how to, it turns out, publicize it. But I didn't really know that's what I was doing. Wow. I didn't. I didn't have any. You know, was plot. this undergrad at NYU? At NYU. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I, did, I even even in in the summers I would do it. But what happened was when I graduated from college, um, Manny Eisenberg, who was a very big producer at the time and still is, mm-hmm. had been an NYU graduate many years 
prior to my graduating from college. And Manny was sort of the great star of NYU. And so everybody would go to Manny for a job. Everybody who wanted to be in the theater. Now, Manny was the only person I had. And I didn't know Manny. I mean, he would come to shows, and I sort of vaguely knew him, but I didn't know him. And he was, you know, a hot producer at the time, hot young producer. And I went and interviewed with um, the, the somebody in Manny's office, and they kept saying, call us in two weeks, call us in two weeks, call us in two weeks, call us in two weeks. And this went on for quite a long time. <laughs> and at the same time this was going on, I had interviewed for a job at Lincoln Center, Inc., and Lincoln Center had just been built, and so Lincoln Center was quite the hot place to be. And... I was so naive and so dumb that I really didn't even know what the job was. I mean, I was it was a lackey job. I couldn't type or anything useful. So it was like I wasn't the secretary or anything. It was much less low, much lower down than that. And so on one hand, the the theater job, the Manny Eisenberg glamour show busy job, they kept saying call us in 2 weeks. On the other hand, Lincoln Center kept offering me jobs and I kept saying no. And finally my mother said you think maybe it's and uh, this is now maybe September October after I graduated in you know May. And what was your degree in? Sorry to interrupt. Theater in English. It was theater yeah. in English. Yeah. Which gotcha. turns out, of course, how much more perfect could that have been? But, <laughs> Hello. I, but, but who, you didn't know. But who Even knew? then, you but didn't know knew? where your career didn't was going. Didn't know that was a job. Okay. So I I keep I keep turning down Lincoln Center Inc. and I keep hol- holding out <laughs> for this this you know job in right. Never Neverland with Manny. And finally, my mother said to me very practically. Um, you think maybe it's time you got a real job, you know, instead of waiting for this. And so I thought, oh, all right, I'll take the job at Lincoln Center because the other, you know, until the other one comes through. And so I did. And it turned out, now this is where life surprises you. Now, I was a little kid. I didn't, I didn't know how to do anything. I couldn't type. I couldn't do anything useful. I was bright and I was capable and I was, you know, uh, uh, I had good instincts, but I didn't have any skills that anybody would actually pay me to do. You know, It turned out that the job, which I didn't even know what department it was in, this shows you how dumb I was, <laughs> was to be the assistant to the press director for Lincoln Center, Inc. <laughs> really. Wow. Now, uh, everybody talks about the fork in the road. Yeah. If the job in Manny's office... And by the way, eventually I worked for Manny as his press agent. So, you know, life comes full circle. circle. But if that was, without knowing it, a fork in the road where if the job with Manny's office had come through, I probably would have eventually become a general manager or a company manager for which I am so not suited. (laughs) (laughs) Because to be a company manager, it's it's all about payrolls and and, uh, contracts and numbers numbers and, and... all the things that really I could care less about. And the fork in the road led me to Jack Frizzell, who was the press director for Lincoln Center, Inc., who was the world's most lovely human being, Mm. the best first boss anybody could have ever had because he was so kind and gentle and funny and helpful and supportive. Mm. And I was just in the right place at the right time. Nothing to do with my... You know, nothing to do really with me. Yeah, I just was in the right place at the right you time. Just took the job, yeah. And yeah. so worked for Jack for a year and a half. Loved him. Loved working at Lincoln Center. It was Lincoln Center was very much you know the hot, buzzy place. And at the end of a year and a half, by this time I was sort of the little golden girl. Everybody liked me, and I was I did a good job, and I learned, and I was bright. They had a cutback, 
And because I was the you know last one in, I was the first one out. Sure. Totally. And I'd never been fired from anything. I I'd never worked at right. <laughs> It's your first job. Where have fired, where would I have been fired from? Girl Scout camp where I was a counselor. And so <laughs> it's true. But because I was the first one to, that they had to let go, and they felt bad. I mean, course, it wasn't like sure. they, they wanted to fire me, but they had a cutback. Because they all felt guilty, and because I was the first one, they all helped me. And I wound up working for a press agent named Frank Goodman, who was the press agent for the theater arm. At the time, there was it was called the Music the Music Theater of Lincoln Center, and it was run by Richard Rogers. Thank oh, you yes, very much. Yes, yeah, they, and they, they did they all these fabulous revivals and, yeah. and stuff. And Frank Goodman was their press agent. And because, as I say, because I was the first one to get fired, they made calls for me and they helped me. I always said if I was the third one fired, nobody would have lifted a finger. <laughs> but because I was the first one, they were nice to me. Yeah. And so I wound up going from Lincoln Center into working for Frank Goodman, who was wow. a theater press agent. Right. And that was sort of the, my, my foot in the door. Mm-hmm. So it's a long, convoluted, wow. convoluted answer to a very no, simple but question. It, it's funny how so many legends that we've talked to, a lot of the reasons why they got where they are is because some serendipitous moment happened and it wasn't planned or anything. It just, well, that you know, fork in the road moment, it was, it's it, fascinating. You know, the thing that I always say is that it was, I mean, this part of it was totally luck. I was totally in the right place at the right time. But the other side of it is that I had exactly the qualifications exactly. that somebody needed. Yeah. I had this theater and English background where I could write and I could I got it. I understood right. what it was about. And so I was really very well suited for this job, although I'm not sure they really knew it. Mm. You know, it was it was it was a combination of things. I'll tell you another one of those accident things that happened. There is a wonderful store called the Drama Bookshop. Of course, yes. Where and your book is. Where my book <laughs> is. I love the Drama Bookshop. I always have loved the Drama Bookshop. Yeah. Years ago, Drama Bookshop was on 52nd Street. This oh. was several incarnations ago. And when I was in college, I guess, I used to go up to the Drama Bookshop and, you know, pick up plays that we were doing or whatever, for readings or sure. whatever we were doing, like everybody else. Yeah. And now this is now after college and after Lincoln Center and Frank Goodman. Maybe I was around that time. So maybe I was a year or so out of two years out of college. And I'm going up to the Drama Bookshop and the door opens on the wrong floor. I mean, on another floor. Yeah. And it opens, and I see a sign that says, Bill Dahl and Company. Now, because I was a theater kid, and because I used to read the back of the book and programs, I knew that Bill Dahl was a theater press agent. It was a big <laughs> theater press agent. So the that. elevator door opens. I see the sign. I get off the elevator. <laughs> I go into the Bill Dahl office. I say, could I leave a resume? <laughs> now, why did I have a resume right, with like me? I have no idea. Like... I had a resume with me. And they say, sure. And they look at they say, can you wait a minute? I say, sure. They look at my resume. They say, can you wait a few minutes? I say, sure, because wh- what am I sure. doing? I'm going to the right. drama bookshop to, to, to browse, right? <laughs> I wait a few minutes. They say, Bill would like to talk to you. They take me to the back. I meet Bill Dahl, who is this old-style southern gentleman who oh is just Mr., Mr. Showbiz. Yeah. And we chat, and he says, can you start on Monday? Wow. And it turned out that somebody had left, like, you know, a minute before I got off the elevator. Mm-hmm. They were looking for somebody to do, uh, to pitch radio and TV. I had just been doing that at Frank Goodman's office. 
And the reason I wasn't at Frank Goodman's office was because a show had closed, and in those, in all press offices, the number of shows dictates the number of people that work there. Ah. It's, a, it's a union thing. And so I walk in off the street, literally off the street, literally <laughs> off the elevator, and get a job with one of the biggest press agents in New York. I mean. And wind up handling applause. Wow. Wow. And now, was Applause your first Broadway my fir- show? My first show from scratch. I'd worked on other shows in the other offices right. that I'd, I'd worked for other press agents in between. And what a show to work on and from but, scratch. But talk about being in the right place at the right time. I know. And, and luck. Because truly, I didn't know Bill Dahl was in that office, in that building. Yeah. Yeah. The elevator opened. On the, and in <laughs> fact, when I launched my book, I did a, a, an event at the Drama Bookshop. And yeah. I said to, to Alan, who's the owner, I said, you know, my career is, is thanks to the drama bookshop. And he said, what do you mean? And I, he, he, I said, I'm going to tell a story at this thing because really it's it's true, you know. And I, I mean, it's, it's I is mean, that the dopiest thing? That is How wild. Funny. It's completely it? true. And if you mentioned this in the book, so would you be so kind as to tell our listeners how old you were when you got your first Broadway musical under your I belt? was 23 I'm for sorry, applause. I just yes. dropped the microphone well, for a second there. <laughs> but you know something that is so nuts that that happened, the way it happened and what happened, and I'll tell you what happened, but it was, it was unheard of, and it shouldn't have happened, but it did. What happened was everybody in the Bill Dahl office was working on applause when it started. It had Lauren Bacall. I mean, it's this big, Lauren Bacall, big, Len big, Carrier, big, epic big, show. big yeah. epic show. It was written by Comden and Green for Betty. Yeah. It, Adams and Strauss, directed by Ron Field. It was created as a vehicle for her. Yeah. And um, she was, it was her first musical. She had done two comedies on Broadway. And uh, this was after years of being the, you know, kind of the queen of Hollywood. And then, yeah. and then Bogey died and she was kind of dumped by Hollywood. And she decided to come back to New York where she grew up and and return to the theater and and go to the theater which is what she had always wanted to do initially before she became a movie star anyway so applause was being created by her friends for her as a vehicle to showcase her so it was built around her persona everything about it was was created in a way to showcase betty's what betty brought to the table Mm -hmm. and she was the first one to tell you that she wasn't a great singer she wasn't a great dancer but but it was it was a time when vehicles were created to to showcase yeah. a big star and and at what they did best yeah. and so the reason that a show like applause doesn't get revived very often and doesn't really work anymore first of all it's very dated but second of all because it it was so specifically created around her persona yeah. that it sort of doesn't work when it's somebody else like Barbara Streisand and funny girl almost exactly. you know, very similar you, you need it's oh you so need that together. somebody that's so distinctive yeah. and so uniquely um theatrical totally and it, it sort of doesn't work. It's only one Bacall in this lifetime, you and, know? <laughs> and, and it's been done with very good other people. But it just – it's just – anyway. So what happened was Bacall was tough. She'd had a tough life. She was a tough cookie. And she didn't suffer fools right. very well. We've heard. And she was um, – she desperately wanted to do well in applause. I mean, yeah. it was so important to her. She wasn't, believe me, she wasn't phoning in. She took singing lesson every day before rehearsals. She took, she worked with a dance instructor on the side. She really was serious. I mean, she was working it. And, you know, was, was, wasn't was selfish at all about the actors. She wanted everybody to have their, you know, to, to shine. She she was very gracious to everybody. She was very kind to everybody. And she was the, she was the den mother. She was the mommy in the company. Somebody got hurt. They were brought to her dressing room. You know, they, she was the mom. Anyway, so during rehearsals, 
everybody was in the press office was kind of afraid of her because she was a tough cookie. And she let you know what she wanted and what she didn't want, and she was very definite about it. For some reason, I could see that underneath this sort of tough exterior that, that she was kind of a big softy. And I don't know why I could see it. Maybe because I was a young kid, she didn't feel she had to put it on with me. I don't know. But yeah, for whatever another, reason... A woman and... I, like, I, well, yeah. but I was a kid. I mean, I yeah. was really a, a young kid. Yeah. Anyway, the because everybody was kind of afraid of her a little bit, and for good reason, she was, she was you know, she could be tough. She would ask if something was done, and they would say yes. And then she'd find out it wasn't done, and she'd kill them. Right. And I, with the innocence of youth would say she'd ask me if something and I'd say I don't know I'll find out if it isn't done I'll take care of it and I wasn't being manipulative I just I, I yeah. mean I didn't know any better yeah, I mean no, I, was just, I was just I was just honest answer. <laughs> well I was honest I mean I was just a, I was a straightforward kid and I really wanted to do good and I, I was trying hard and wasn't manipulative somebody years later said to me how did you manipulate that I said I could barely get my clothes on right, you know, right side out. I, I couldn't. Totally. Have, I, I'm not sure I could have done it now, but I certainly couldn't have done it then. Anyway, so one day I'm called into Bill's office, and he says, uh, we just had a meeting with Larry Cash and Joe Kipnis, the producers of Applause, and Betty has told them, <laughs> this is so stupid, that the only person she will deal with, that she will speak to in no the way. Bill Dahl office is you. <laughs> Good Susan. Oh, so, so here I am. It was it was nuts. Really, it was nuts. So here I am, twenty three. I'm right. not even in the union yet. I'm not even. I'm still apprenticing to Atpam, which is the press agency. Oh, union. thank you. I was going to ask. What yes, the, the and union I'm is. still apprenticing. I don't even have my weeks to get in the union, and I am now informed that I am the sole person in the Bill Dahl office that Betty Bacall will speak to. My God. <laughs> Nuts. It's great. Really, it's, nuts. it's incredible. It was. It was nuts. Uh, Nowadays, nobody would let this happen. I of mean, course. It, it was yeah. it was crazy. But it did happen. But she was, you know, oh. Len Carrier told us how he, you know, she will approved his casting. Absolutely. You know, like she was, she, she was there for the callback. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. She she was absolutely on top of her wow. game. She was calling the shots. And so for her to go to Kipnis and Cash and say this, like, it was nuts. So so there I was. And the the thing that's so funny is I look back now and I think, well, what were they? Were they crazy? I mean, like, what the hell did I know? You know, I mean, I was, I had good instincts, and I certainly try. I mean, yeah. I worked night and day, but I mean, th- they let it happen, you know, and they did let it happen because they. It's a good account, they you didn't, know. They, they yeah. didn't. So, so in order to keep the account, suddenly <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was a little more valuable. <laughs> I didn't get a penny more. I'll tell you that. No, of course not. In fact, I'll tell you something mean when. When opening night came, and of course I was I was so thrilled. I mean, I was like over the moon. You know, here I am handling this. I mean, I was so sure. I was in such heaven, and I was so you know kind of in love with everything about it. You know, I was so enamored with it. I couldn't believe that I was. You know, I could walk into the palace stage door and someone would say hi, Susan. Yeah. You know, I couldn't yeah. believe it. It was like how what? Yeah. Um, opening night, I I wasn't given seats, and I didn't even think about it. I. I thought, well, of course I have to stand in the back. And later I realized that everybody in the Bill Dole office was given press, had given themselves press seats except me, you know. But I didn't care because I, I was so happy to be there. I couldn't believe it. You know, it was it was like magic. But that's how it happened. And it was just amazed by that. What were so was I? (laughs) 
Well, it's obviously panned out quite beautifully. What were some of your responsibilities uh, for publicizing that show? I mean, you're, you're, you've got this great big star doing her first musical, so I'm assuming that's mm-hmm. an easy in. But what else did you have to do to well, keep that show in the papers? Well, interestingly, because Bacall was such a big star, she really didn't want to, and she'd, of course, done everything by this time. She, you know, she'd been a huge Hollywood yes. star and all this. She really didn't want to do a lot of publicity. And so it was my job to figure out how to sort of deflect things that you know journalists say wanted Bacall and I'd say well unfortunately Betty is you know on vocal rest right. or whatever it's you know schedule yeah yeah um, but how about Penny Fuller how about Bonnie Franklin how about Len Carew how about Leroy Reams right. you know how about Brandon Maggard and so it was a matter of finding all the other things that I had to sell and and getting them coverage and it, it was it's also things like designing the front of house, the f- picking the photos that go out in front of the theater. Um, nowadays, it's done more by the advertising agency, but in those days, it was done with the press agent. Wow. So, you know, you really you really had to balance, you know, people's billing against people's uh, importance to the show, yeah. to the relationship with the star, you know, in, in visually. In terms and that's of, you making that That decision. was me making those decisions, yes. And also, it's it was... You know, there were thousands of interview requests for because it was a huge hit, and then yeah. of course it won the Tony for best musical, and so it became an even bigger hit. But it was because of Bacall initially, and also it was Comden and Green. It was Adams and Strauss who had done Bye Bye Birdie. Right. It, was, it was everything about the show. There were so many hooks for things, and there were lots of opportunities for um, for some of the the the. The gypsies, the chorus dancers in yeah. the show, where I was, you know, I would do hometown stories, for instance, and. Because it was a very happy company, because it was she she set the tone, and she and the star of the show very often does set mm-hmm. the tone of a of a company, and she set the tone on that one because she was so happy, she was so, um, it was such a happy time in her wow. life, and the 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 funny thing was that I'm somebody who always introduces myself when I meet somebody. I never say hi. I always say hi. I'm Susan Shulman mm-hmm. because I hate that momentary blank look in people's Even eyes where they're trying to where they're course. trying to figure out who you are totally. and I hate that and I wish everybody did that because it would make life a lot easier <laughs> because, because none of us are that you know yeah um, and so for the rest of her life whenever I'd bump into Betty and this went on for years I'd say hi Betty Susan Schulman and she always would say I know who the hell you are and, she, <laughs> and then she would give me a hug always always gracious never a time when she wasn't Aww. gracious to me and I believe it was because, and she would always say the same thing. That was, it was like our, it was like our, our act, yes. you know, hi, Susan Shulman. And she said, I know who the hell you are. And give me a kiss. And, but I think it's because I was part of a very happy time in her life. Yeah. And so in her mind, I was identified with that. Right. And I was very protective of her and I cared. And she knew I cared. I mean, exactly, I adored yeah. her. She was wonderful to me. And I was, as oh. I say, I was a little kid. So I always thought if she had ever, you know, come at me with you know that other side of her personality i i'm sure i would have crumbled because i didn't have any defenses i didn't have a way to cope with that and i think she knew that i think she must have instinctively thought that you know i can't do this with her because she will crumble and then i'll have to deal with that do you always feel protective always actors always always unless they're Terrible people, yeah. <laughs> and there's only been a few. Mostly, mostly I adore you, actors. Yeah. I was going to say this: you don't have to mention any names, but no. how do you continue to publicize a show when you really just do not enjoy the presence of either the actors or the creative team? How do you get around that? My job is to figure out what I have to sell 
and who to sell it to. Or inclusive now. It wasn't when I first started. Um, so it was a, an apprenticeship. I mean, you, you worked for low wages and you worked for people. And then mm-hmm. when you got in the union, then you became an associate and you worked on shows as their associate. And if a show closed, then you very often had to find another job at another press office because the number of associates was was dictated by the number of contracts that the, the senior press agent handled. And so I worked for lots of press agents and I, and I learned my craft and I loved it. I was a very good associate. I was very supportive. I loved working for other people. And eventually reached a point where it was time to go out on my own and open my own office. And so in 1978, I was working for Merle Dubusky, who was the top uh, Broadway press agent and had worked for Merle for uh, almost five years wow. and, you know, was great. And, and and he couldn't have been more supportive that I, it was time for me to, you know, leave the nest and open my own office. And I did. And then I had my own press office in the Paramount Building for um, a while. And then in 1985, CBS made me the offer you can't refuse. Yeah. And at that time, uh, theater was going through a bad patch, and there were fewer shows getting Watch. up, and there was a, not very much money around. And so you'd, you'd be hired for a show, and then it wouldn't get on because they couldn't raise the money. And it was a tough time. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is a sign. CBS wants me. And CBS actually created a job for me. It was it was un, unheard of. It was crazy. It was also like, you know, getting off the elevator at the wrong floor. Because yeah. <laughs> you weren't was, looking for No, I wasn't. I had work. my own yeah. office. I yeah. was, you know, kind so. of hills and valleys, but it was yeah. fine. And, I, you know, I had sort of one big show a year and lots of smaller shows. So it was okay. Um, and I thought, oh, this is, this, this is maybe what I meant to do. Hmm. And so I closed my office, and I went to CBS, and I it was a, cr- a job created for me. It was it was really something. Wow. And from day one, I knew it was a mistake. Oh, <laughs> it was terrible. Okay. You it. were no longer working in the theater industry. Well, I had nothing to do with the theater, but I was also I had never worked in a big corporate mm. um, environment before. I didn't know what hit me. I was a director, which was very high level at CBS, which was um, meant I was managing uh, a department. Right. What, what was the job they created for uh, you? Director of press information, and I handled all the, the publicity for all the mi- the miniseries, which in in, which in mid mid eighties was a big deal at, at CBS, and it was all these you know multi night uh, events, sins with. Sins. Um, wow. Yeah, we had a lot of really big, big, big shows with big, big, big talent. And it was Sins starring Joan Collins. Oh. Yes. I think I can sell that, I said. Joan I Collins. <laughs> nice. Joan Collins in Sins. Anyway, um, you know, it was. Of it course was, she was. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, like, of course right. that was the title. I, I think I, think I, I can it. get some coverage yeah. on that. Yeah. <laughs> But um, but the truth was, I was not, very, I wasn't very well suited for the job. Mm. And, um, I mean, they were right to hire me because I understood how to do it, but I didn't much like it because the truth was when you talk about being involved with the creative process in television, it's a product. You're presented with a product. It's done. And, you know, you've got these five stars to publicize. You've got this amount of time. You've got, it was just, it was very um, cut and dried. There was no stage door Johnny's knowing your name, you know, like that kind of personal. And and the, the, the fact was that I was managing... 25 people who were doing exactly what I love to do and which in fact I was probably better at than they were and instead I was doing goals and strategies and fourth quarter marketing reviews and so it was like oh this isn't 
fun at all. Yeah. And I and I spent six years in television land. I, I was at CBS, and then I was the head of PR at A&E for four years. Oh, and my yeah. goodness. At first, I was at USA Network and then at A&E. And so I spent six years in all in television land. Didn't much like it. <laughs> and at the end of it, I thought, why am I doing this? I, I could be back mm-hmm. doing something I love. Mm-hmm. And I left. I gave notice. Nobody ever gave notice in those days at, in television. They people right. in in my department at CBS had all been there twenty years. Oh, I mean, they couldn't they couldn't wow. believe anybody left. And I went back to the theater and worked as somebody's associate. And I, um, the first day I had to cover something. It was at City of Angels. Oh yeah. And I went over to. I, I walked in the stage door, and I had this absolutely overwhelming sense of being home. Aww. I'll never forget it because it was almost shocking to me that that it was so strong. It was that, you know, people talk about an aha moment. Yeah. I remember I can I mean to this day I can remember the feeling of walking through the stage door and thinking I know exactly how to do this job. I know exactly what I need to do. I know exactly who I need to talk to. I know exactly how, how you know how to do this. And the whole time I was in television land, I never felt that. I always felt, you know, I'm like I'm like hanging on by my toenails yeah, a little bit. You know, right. I mean, I can do it, but I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. And it was that overwhelming sense of being where I should be. Right. It was interesting. Oh, wow. And confirmed it. I mean, it, I, really, yeah. it, it was such a, it was, I mean, to this day, I can remember that feeling and thinking, ah, this is what I am supposed yeah. to be doing. And I worked for this, I worked for this press agent for maybe six months. And then I reopened my own reopened. office back in the Paramount. Yeah. Bigger and better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Uh, how do you deal with, um, a star or, or a big actor who is publicity shy, mm. who might be a little bit more reclusive off stage. Oh yeah, I can imagine it, that happens it, from time it to time. It does happen, yeah. and it's a challenge. I mean, you have to figure it out. It's it's like, um, well, what else do I have to sell? Or maybe maybe it's a matter of channeling that reluctance in a way that that person needs. For instance, mm-hmm. Vanessa Redgrave mm-hmm. uh, did a show at the Circle in the Square. And I kept going to her and saying, um, will you talk to the New York Times? And she'd say no. And I'd say, and then I'd come back and I'd say, what about talking to the Associated Press? And she'd say no. And then I'd come back and I'd say, what about talking? No. It was always no. And finally, out of sort of desperation, because she, she was very political. She was very involved. You know, she had done a very famous um, oh, yes. uh, anti-Israel speech when she won an Oscar. And so, so there was a lot, very politically involved and very, um, a lot of um, anti-Israel, pro-Palestinian stuff. And um, finally, out of desperation, I said, have you been told by either your government or our government um, that you can't talk to the media? And she just said yes. Wow. And I never knew whether that was the U.S. government or whether it was the British government or whether it was a condition of her work permit. I never knew. And I wow. never had the nerve to ask. Of course. But I realized this was a non-starter. Right. And so we had to figure out a way around that. Yeah. So obviously we had photos of her in the show, which we used to great advantage. Um, and there were other actors in the show that were interesting Pat Hingle do you remember Pat oh, Hingle yeah, yeah wonderful actor. actor who was not you know a marquee name but certainly right. well respected so we did a lot of stuff with Pat Hingle and and we worked around it and there was still plenty of stuff about her but it wasn't an interview mm-hmm. yeah. because she obviously no, couldn't, couldn't, and, couldn't and wouldn't 
I'm sure all of your projects have their own challenges, but what was the most challenging project that you ever worked on? Hmm. Probably both in a good way and a bad way, State Fair. State Fair. State Fair was the, um, was uh, Rogers and Hammerstein wrote State Fair for film. It's the only musical they ever wrote initially for the films. Right. It was, everything else was written initially for stage except for Cinderella, Cinderella. which was written for yeah, television yeah. initially. And State Fair had been um, a, a movie made in the 40s and then it was remade in the 60s with Pat Boone mm-hmm. and, and not, not as successfully. And it was kind of, nobody much cared. It was just this musical that had a lot of good songs in it. Right. You know, uh, Might as well be spring and it's yeah. great not for singing and, you know, songs that we all knew. But, it wasn't produced. And then in the mid-90s, the North Carolina School for the Arts did a production that was written by Tom Briggs and Louis Mattioli, and they were connected with the Rodgers and Hammerstein Association and they organization. And they wrote State Fair to be another one of the shows that R&H could license mm-hmm. to schools and to, you know, touring productions or whatever. Uh, it was never intended for Broadway. It was going to just be another one of the R&H shows. Sure. One of, you know, there's the Big Five, which is right. like South Pacific and Sound yeah. Music. And okay. then there were, there were some yeah. other shows that were not as successful. And the intention was that State Fair would be yet another one of those shows, yeah. R&H shows. The theater, and it was very successful at North Carolina School of the Arts. Um, Susan Egan was in it. Uh-huh. It was a, oh, yeah. evidently a yeah. wonderful production. And the Theater Guild, which had been huge, you know, in the early days Kath gave Catherine Hepburn her start and Luntz and you know all yeah. huge huge deal had been sort of on its you know low down years and they decided to take this production of State Fair from North Carolina School of the Arts and take it on the road they'd never seen it they never saw a video of it. <laughs> they just decided because they had produced the original productions of Oklahoma and Carousel. And right. They, yeah. They had sure. they had been R and H, you know, yeah. producers. So they decided <laughs> that they were going to produce this tour, sight a national unseen. tour, sight unseen. That's of sweet. of State Fair. Okay. So they cast State Fair, and and I was involved with this from day one. Like applause. It was one of those shows where I was right there in the, in the beginning, and they cast it with people that you sort of knew and loved or or more than sort of knew and loved uh-huh. like John Davidson who was oh, yeah, who right. was adorable and people knew him from all his television shows and his movies and he uh, he's a huge uh, what's called a TV queue which is a likability on television totally and sell tickets. and <laughs> and began in the theater he he was he played Bert Lars son on Broadway is his first job huh. and and John Davidson, by the way, is God's gift to the press agent. He's just the, the best. I love John Davidson. Okay. So John Davidson was cast as the father. Catherine Crosby, who was Bing Crosby's widow, was cast as the mother. Oh, wow. Andrea McArdle, who was yep. the original Annie, was cast as the daughter. Scott Wise, who was the best We've male. We've interviewed for this podcast. I love yeah. Scotty. I take tap class from Scotty. Oh, my God. I love, love Scott that. Wise. He has, a, he has a wonderful school in New Milford. That's um, right. I take tap class there. Um, oh, cool. I know. I love him. Um, Scotty was the sort of, uh, I don't know what you call it, but he was adorable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the love uh, interest. The love yeah. interest. Um, uh, ben Wright, who had been in... Um, um, Into the Woods. Into the Woods, oh, thank yeah. you, yeah. was the other young male lead. 
um, Donna McKechnie, of course, from Chorus Line. It was a cast. It was a cast. Was was the sort of older woman that Ben falls in love with in the show. So everything about it, these were people that you knew and loved, that you cared about, that you, you that you if you were in the theater that you certainly knew about, mm-hmm. and it worked. And I I used to have this this thing that I used to say to people, but it was true. The the overture would begin, and we would five minutes we would look around the audience and everybody would be sitting in the audience with a big dopey grin on their face <laughs> because first of all you knew all the songs it's right. a grand yeah. night for singing you totally. knew all those songs and then John Davidson would come out and you go oh John Davidson and then Catherine Croy oh Catherine Crosby <laughs> oh I don't recall you you wanted to love it yeah. and you did and so you sat there with this big sappy grin on your face through the whole show it right. was that it was like I used to say it's comfort food in, it in the theater. Yeah, it's, it's just a show about a state fair in Iowa. Like, it's just it's sweet. I it's mean, just fun. Yeah. And people loved it. And everybody said, uh, we give it the blue ribbon. That was the big yeah, thing. Every, right. every critic, every review, of course, the kind of, okay. Oh, yeah, I remember that in the, in the but, logo. And but it wasn't that, that wasn't the original logo. It became the logo eventually when we came to New York. But it, wow. it was another logo from North Carolina School of the oh, Arts. They bought that along with the show. So, so state fair was never supposed to come to New York. It was never intended to come to Broadway. It was going to be a nine-month tour, and that was it. Well, that yeah. was it. Along comes David Merrick. Oh, Thank you. The David abominable Merrick, showman. David Merrick had been the abominable showman, um, had by this, who, of course, was the greatest Broadway producer, all the musicals right. I grew up on, right. you know, yeah. seeing. Yeah. Um, David Merrick, by this time, had had a stroke, Right. And could neither walk nor talk, so he was in a wheelchair and he couldn't speak. David Merrick and his companion, who subsequently became his wife, wanted to buy the show Lock, Stock, and Barrel from the Theater Guild. The Theater Guild, after much discussion, said no, because uh, everybody said you're getting into bed with the devil. <laughs> and they were right, <laughs> and so the Theater Guild said no, we won't sell you the the production, but you can become our partners and so maybe not the best decision it became David Merrick presents the Theatre Guild production of Rodgers and Hammerstein Stay Fair wow there's a lot to put on a marking yeah <laughs> so then we had so then we had David Merrick who really 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 wanted to be back on Broadway and wanted people to you know sure right acknowledge his, his name above the lights exactly again. yeah Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And so it went from this nice little touring show, whichever, which was like comfort food for theater goers, to becoming, to coming to Broadway. Broadway! Broadway! Yeah. Showbiz! And yeah. 
And yeah. it wasn't it was never intended to come to Broadway. And so all of a sudden, slam bam, we're we're getting ready for Broadway. Suddenly we have a theater and we have a date and we have uh, we're going to Broadway, you know. And and part of us is we're hysterical with joy because we all love the show so much and we're so happy about it. And the other part of it is like should we really be going to Broadway with this show? Because this maybe isn't uh, yeah, Broadway. Yeah. It was very. It was done in a very old-fashioned way. It mm-hmm. was all. Do you know what push sticks are? Moving yes. scenery. It, oh, it's yeah. the old-fashioned way like, of pushing yeah, it out yeah, with a stick, totally. as opposed to it having tracks oh, yeah, yeah, on, the, yeah. on the stage floor. I mean, there were tracks, but they weren't elect- electrified. So, yeah. so literally push sticks. So you'd be sitting. You'd be standing in the stage, and there'd be a, a, a wagon with a set piece on it, and guys would go. Very Push. old fashioned. I'm, I'm showing wow. with my hands yeah, on the no, radio. I'm yeah. like, pushing. Yes, I I'm pushing. It. I'm pushing. And that's how the sets moved. Wow. Um, the, it had painted backdrops, which mm-hmm. was very old fashioned. You know, it had a painted um, show curtain. Right. Very old fashioned. Mm-hmm. You know, it was an, just the fact it had an overture. I mean, had like, an overture. <laughs> had, had an entract. Oh, yeah. yeah, and and it was, but it but it was done beautifully because it was Rodgers and Hammerstein, and God knows. You know, you want a waltz? That's let's right. let's get one yeah. from them. You know, let's get a Richard Rogers <laughs> waltz, and it was so it was beautifully done, and the people were wonderful, and of course they'd been touring for nine months, so they you know they they were great, and so suddenly we were coming to New York with a new logo with the big blue ribbon, yeah, and um, money, you know, or so we thought, and um, it was something, you know, and it but it wasn't supposed to happen that way. It wasn't nobody. And nobody was more surprised than the Rogers and Amistad yeah. Association because they didn't think it was going to come <laughs> right. And, in fact, they had to get their permission because they weren't entirely convinced it should. Now, it did come to Broadway, and it got mostly very good reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, the sad thing, or not sad, but the, but the interesting thing was that it opened during the same season as Rent. Yes. And... So here we had, on one hand, we had this, you know, hip, cutting-edge show that everybody was lining up outside to see. And on the other hand, we had this very old-fashioned, warm and fuzzy, mm-hmm. you know... Traditional. Traditional, like, yeah. very old-fashioned, but very endearing show. And I always, you know, this is the eternal question, if it had opened in another season, would it have been different? Of course. And maybe yes, maybe no. You never know. Yeah. But it was very interesting because the contrast between the two shows was so extreme. Um, you know, it wasn't yeah. as, as if they opened against, you know, a sort of traditional other kinds of shows, totally. which totally. were around. But here was Rent, which was you know the the cutting the Hamilton edge of its day, really. Yeah. I exactly. Mean, it, I was it, I, I was thinking that. Yeah. And and this very kind of throwback, old fashioned show for which there was an audience. Yeah. But it was it was very interesting, and it was and because because David Merrick really wasn't David Merrick anymore, um, and 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 his his spokesperson, his companion, um, we would have a meeting, and David Merrick would say we we'd ask him a question, and he was he was there, he was in there sometimes, but he couldn't speak, and so he would you would ask him a question, and he would sort of mumble. And then she would say, well, Mr. Merrick feels, and she would talk for 20 minutes. And you'd think, wow, she got all that from, you know. And it was very hard to keep a straight face because she would say, well, Mr. Merrick feels, and she would just go on and on and on and on and on. And you would have to listen because, you know, she was, as we used to say, she was standing on David Merrick's money. And so (laughs) it was a very peculiar thing because... She didn't know anything. I mean, she wasn't right. She, it's not like she, she spent her whole life in the theater. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if he said something, you would listen because he was David Merrick, he did and, it. and yeah. he knew. You yeah. know, 
but she really didn't. Wow. And so it was very peculiar. And eventually, um, it kind of turned into a mess, and, and well, you know, and then how closed. Could it not? But yeah. uh, but before it became a mess, it uh, she decided to fire everybody, <laughs> and uh, including the press agent. And I mean, everybody got fired. The, the company manager, the general manager, the press agent, everybody got fired. Um, and I, of course, was devastated yeah. because it was. I mean, it was my heart, you yeah, know. I mean, yeah. I just I cared so about this show, and I cared about You've the been people. With it for so long, the and, I, and I loved it. Yeah. I mean, I genuinely loved it, yeah. and I loved everybody in it. And it was a very it was a very close company. I'm, again, I'm still very close to mm-hmm. most of the people in that company, and but I was also um, humiliated because I was here. I was this spokesperson for for this show, and everybody knew I was the press agent. Right. And suddenly, I wasn't the press agent, and I had to come up with. Um, a sort of response because everybody was going to call me and say what happened and so I created a very artfully concocted sentence now keep in mind that David Merrick was famous for doing this I mean he was famous for firing people and famous for his you know suing people and he was yeah. I mean this was how he created yeah. his persona and so I <laughs> and I have to have to think about it a minute not it like, was like it was I'm honored this was the statement that I issued when people asked. Okay. I'm honored to join the long list of distinguished theater professionals to be fired by David Merrick. Amazing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Wasn't that good? That's genius. I worked oh. very hard on that. Thank you. I really I'm did. Honored part. I'm That's the part honored really to join it. the yes. long list of distinguished. I worked very hard oh, on God. that. Because yes. my heart. List it all. Because my heart was broken. <laughs> I mean, yeah. my heart was broken. I was devastated. And. And the, you know, but you had to say something because everybody was calling me. And luckily, everybody got it. They mm-hmm. got the sarcasm and they got the tongue-in-cheekness yeah. of it. And I was treated very well because right. my career could have been over. Totally. You know, I could have been trashed in right. the media and, you know, never gotten another job. And so it was, it was I was prouder of that statement <laughs> than almost anything else. But so it, you talk about love, hate, you know. I mean, I loved that show. I loved the people in the show. I loved the the um, all roads led to me. I yeah. was involved with every second of that show. I was involved with every bit of it. The tour, the Broadway, everything. The post, I then handled it post-Broadway. There was a national tour with John Davidson, and I handled yeah. that with another producer. So, I mean, it was in my heart, you know. But it was also devastating because it was such a difficult production, and it went yeah. through so many um, ups and downs. And it oh, was, yeah. you know... And chronicled quite brilliantly in your book. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Well, in, in in backstage pass to Broadway, there there as some critics have pointed out, there are sort of two or three big stories that I tell, and then there are lots of smaller stories. And one of the big stories is working with State Fair and David Merrick and all yeah. of that. It was Merrick's last show, and in fact, um, a, a couple of years later, he died, and because I was the sort of press agent of record for the last show he did. A lot of media people called me, <laughs> and of course, I didn't know if it, they wanted to know if he was really dead, and I didn't know if he was really dead or not. I mean, they didn't call me to tell me, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I kept saying, "I don't know if he's dead or not, but um, I'd like to kick the coffin <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> to check." <laughs> funny. But um, yeah, it was it was an adventure. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, speaking of adventure, we're gonna go. Back in your chronology. Oh my uh, God! Can we talk about Zero Mostel? <laughs> yes. And talk about dying. And uh, yeah, <laughs> where were you? <laughs> this is the this is this is a word of truth. When the star dies, 
it's a sign not to go on. <laughs> I would think you, so. you heard it here first, ladies but, and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, but in this case, we did. You were like, would we're you, taking yeah. the play to Broadway anyway. We're coming yes. in anyway. Would you tell us a little about what yes. this play was? This was this was one of those shows that um, we all have scars from. You talk about difficult productions. Um, the show was the play was called The Merchant, and it was Arnold Wesker's telling of the story of Shylock, of the Merchant of Venice, oh, wow. from the Jewish perspective. And Zero Mostel was cast as Shylock. It was directed by John Dexter, who was a very famous and very oh. difficult English director who had Do done Equus, Equus, Madame Butterfly, and Butterfly. What year would the, was I should know when uh, Zero Mostel passed uh, away, but Z, I can't remember. Seventy-eight, uh, I think. Oh, okay, yeah. gotcha. Yeah. 77, uh-huh. 77, okay. around there. So The Merchant. Yeah, The Merchant. So The Merchant um, starts rehearsals in New York. It's Marion Seldes, uh, Sir John Clements, wow. um, uh, Roberta Maxwell. It was it was quite oh, yeah. impressive company. And Z, uh, who, Zero Mustel is known as Z, um, <laughs> before uh, the show began rehearsals, he lost a hundred pounds on a one of those liquid diets that was very in fashion then. Where okay. and it was all under medical supervision. It was he passed the physical for the insurance. I mean, it was all wow. fine as far okay. as everybody knew. Started rehearsals, and Dexter, who was a very caustic, cutting, um, uh, very sarcastic um, director, known known to always have a whipping boy in every company, and and really cruel kind of director. Um, pitted people against each other mm-hmm. and and you kind of had the feeling that if it could go wrong it would go wrong yeah. it was one of those shows where we kept saying there's a little black cloud and 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 things kept happening you know things that in and of themselves didn't seem like such a big deal but when you put them all together you thought oh my god you know this is like disaster so finally the show goes to philadelphia where it's going to play philadelphia and then it's going to play the kennedy center in washington and then it's going to come to broadway Produced by the Schuberts, oh. uh, by Roger Stevens, by the Kulkundis, big, big, you know, yeah. big players, uh, big engagements. Legit, yeah. Big, I mean, like, big. Yeah. Everyone thought this was going to be the the sort of um, high high class um, show to see, intellectual show to see of the season. Mm-hmm. The Merchant. We go to Philadelphia um, because of all the things that were going on and all the. Uh, dramas backstage and a lot of very unhappy people sure. being mean to each other and mostly Dexter being mean to people but a lot of conflict um, they never had enough time to actually run the play to do a full dress rehearsal before the first preview Oh, yeah because it was a big show it was a big physically big show big sets big costumes big everything and so the first preview in Philadelphia which was on a Friday night ran over four hours. <laughs> yeah. And this was a serious, serious, serious play. Oh, four God. hours. Really long. And um, and as you know, in the theater, there's something called golden time, which is if anything runs past three hours, everybody gets paid a lot of money. That's right. Yeah. So you don't want to run beyond three hours. Yeah. So four hours, really not Ooh. good. So everybody... So but, but they got through it. They'd never run the full play before. So this was like a miracle that everybody got through it. So... We're, we're For the all, audience as well. It was. It wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, I mean, you could see that it was going to be good, but right. it wasn't good it yet. Needed, yeah, you know. needed to be cut, and and people didn't know their lines, and yeah. you know, I mean, it was. It was not. Wow. But four over four hours. Okay, so after the show, we all go up on stage and we're all sort of 
so relieved that they got <laughs> through it. You know, but nobody died. Everybody got through the show. Well. <laughs> and so we were supposed I was with Merle Dubusky who was the, the senior press agent and I was the associate mm-hmm. on the show and we had come down f- for the Friday performance and we were going to stay through the Saturday matinee and then take the train back to New York and that night um, after the preview and it was late and the Schubert said do you want to drive back with us in the limo now you know like at 2 o'clock in the morning or something and so we thought sure why not okay yeah. fine so, so we get in the limo and we drive back to New York the next day, Saturday, before the matinee, Z's in his dressing room, and he doesn't feel well, and they take him to the hospital. They cancel the matinee. We're in New York. And he's in the hospital, and they're trying to figure out what's wrong with him, and he's having tests, and nobody knows what's wrong with him. And meanwhile, everybody's suggesting cuts in the play. They're saying, well, you know, that scene could be... And because everybody knows it can't be four hours long. Right. I mean, they, this is a given. And so they keep doing tests on Z, and they keep not knowing what's wrong with him, and they, everybody's in limbo, and nobody knows what's happening. And finally, they decide that they're going to cancel the Philadelphia engagement. They've done one performance in Philadelphia, and they're just going to come back to New York and rehearse in New York, and then they're going to open at the Kennedy Center. So they discharge Zero Mustel from the hospital. His wife is on the way to the hospital to pick him up. He falls out of bed and drops dead. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So now we have Zero Mustel, the reason that everybody is doing The Merchant. Right. It's like his name. It's yeah. Zero Mustel in The Merchant. Yeah. Right. And, you know, this famous Jewish mm-hmm. actor who's famous for playing, you know, Tevya. Yeah. Yes. Dead. Okay. So we all think, well, th- we've been waiting for the other shoe to drop on this production because everything that could have gone wrong yeah. has, has gone it? wrong. The other shoe has now dropped. Right. Zero, zero mustache. Yeah. The nader is, is met. Dead. Yeah. Right. It can be worse than this. He's dead. Um, I, by the way, I'm in New York City and I'm watching the news on television and I see Zero Mustelle dies. I didn't know. Oh my God. So nobody bothered. I guess, I think Merle knew, but I didn't know. So I'm, I'm watching, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. So anyway, so Z's dead. And we all think, well, so is the merchant because. Yeah. When the star like dies, the yeah. show. <laughs> but we were wrong. And John Dexter, <laughs> John, I know, funny now, wasn't funny no. then. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't funny. So John Dexter, the director, who was, I say, was a mean kind of guy, went to the Schubert's and he said, well, you've got this window of opportunity to either go on or I'm done. Because he was the artistic director at the Metropolitan Museum at the at the at the Met, the oh, Met Opera, yeah. at the same time, and yeah. he only had a little window of opportunity where he could direct, continue to finish working wow. on the Merchant, and then he had to go back to being an opera director. And for whatever reason, he convinced the Schuberts that the Merchant should go on without Zero Mustel, and he said to them, "I've got Anthony Quayle in my back pocket. I've got." Lawrence Olivier in my back pocket. I've got Peter O'Toole in my back pocket. Mm-hmm. And the Schubert said, okay. And turned out he didn't have anybody in his back pocket. <laughs> oh, but, wonderful. But they didn't know that. And what he did was he promoted Z's understudy, whose name was Joseph Leon, to play Shylock. Wow. Now, Joseph Leon was a perfectly good character actor mm-hmm. who had a career. He was talented. Sure. He was a lovely man. He didn't have 
any more chance of replacing Zero Mustel than I did. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, really. Yeah. Uh, you, you needed somebody who was, you know, larger than life. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't. He was just a good character actor who, you know, did a workmanlike job, but wasn't over the top big. Yeah. And it needed to be. It was written that way. He was made to wear Z's costumes. They all had Mustel in them. I mean, it was terrible. Yeah. And so this production that was hung on Zero Mustel came in starring Joseph Leon, bless his heart, I mean, who was fine, right? but, but didn't oh. have a prayer. And we never heard another word about, you know, Anthony Quayle or Peter O'Toole. Right. That, 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 they well, didn't seem to be yeah. part of the <laughs> equation. And so it opened and it closed. But it was one of those shows that if it could go wrong, it did go wrong. Oh. Right up to closing night. Closing night, the, the, the actors were taking their final curtain call and at the final bow somebody looked up and saw that the chain holding the fire curtain broke and the fire curtain they they saw that the that the fire curtain which most audience members don't see but it's up there started to come down and they pulled everybody to safety and nobody was hurt but it came crashing to the stage and yeah it and it was like an act of god and roberta maxwell said Z had the last laugh. <laughs> wow. That's wild. And there's a book that chronicles the, all of well, this, correct? Well, the, the book was written by Arnold Wesker. Oh, in fact, wow. I'm in the book, which surprised me. The Arnold Wesker was very bitter about this production because a lot of what he wrote was cut because it was four hours long. Yeah. <laughs> and he some of it was cut without his uh, approval, which is against the law, right. against the Dramatist Guild and all that. And so he was very bitter about this production and what happened because it was taken. It wasn't taken away from him, but but cuts were made in his play, and and which right. shouldn't be allowed. And so, unbeknownst to any of us at the time, and I was quite friendly with Arnold. He was a lovely man. Um, he was taking notes. He had he was keeping a diary of everything that went on. And he subsequently, years later, wrote a book called the um, the making the. The Making of Shylock and, and the Death of Mustel, something like that. That's not quite right. And and he not only did he chronicle everything that went on during the out-of-town tryouts and rehearsals and everything, mm-hmm. um, but he also included in his book every single word that was cut, every every scene, every right. every earlier version of a of a scene that subsequently it's all in the book. It's fascinating <laughs> wow. because it's it's kind of like he gets the last laugh, really you know. Yeah. And it was I mean it was really interesting because I um I hadn't seen him in years and when the book came out, I thought, "Oh, I've got to talk to him. I've got to talk to him." And I tracked him down. He was giving a a book talk someplace at a at a college or something. And I don't know how I did it, but I got to somebody at the college and I said, "Look, can you give him my name and ask him to call me?" And he did, and we had lunch and we huh. had we had such a good time because he said to me, this is how I remember it, and I would love to know how you remember it. And in a funny way, that's what that chapter is about. Oh, wow. It's me. It's how I remember it. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I mean, it's not different from how he remembered it because we lived but through the same thing. But it's from different yeah. perspectives. Yeah. And um, but it's fascinating because uh-huh. I, there were things in his book that I didn't know anything about, yeah. and I'm sure there were things at my end that he didn't know anything uh-huh. about. But it's about the same events. But his book is fascinating. Oh yeah, I'm in his book a little bit here and there because he'll talk about something and he'll say, and and there was Susan Shulman in tears. Oh. <laughs> the 
podcast because John Dexter oh, had said something terrible to me. And oh, I was, gosh. It's very funny because I was, you know. Now, in your book, <laughs> um, there's a photograph of, of you and Mr. Mostel, and you yes. say before the photograph was taken, he mm-hmm. was quite inappropriate. Yes, he was. Um, b- being a female press agent, mm-hmm. do people try to take advantage of your gender at any point um, during your career? I don't think as often as you might think. I think it was a time when um, women were treated a certain way and it was just accepted. Um, I mean, it's it's ironic that all these things that are coming out now about, you know, uh, Bill Cosby and, and Donald Trump, and people say, well, why didn't they say something? Why didn't they speak up then? Well, the truth was nobody would have believed them and nobody would have cared. And And the story that I tell in the book is an instance of that. It, mm. Briefly, what happened was we were doing a photo shoot with Zero Mustel for a magazine called Q, which subsequently turned into New York Magazine, but it was Q Magazine at the time. And it was a cover shoot for him. And at the end of the photo shoot, which is fairly common, somebody said, oh, let's take a picture of all the people that made this happen. And so it was me and some lighting people and, and Z's dresser, and, and Z was on a, a stool, and we all sort of gathered around him. And I knelt down next to him on the, uh, by his knee. And right before the photographer took the picture, apropos of absolutely nothing, he reached over and just grabbed my breast. And I sort of shut, I, I mean, I was so shocked. I didn't, it was like, and, and I shoved his hand away. And that's the picture that's in the book. Yeah. And the only reason that story is in the book is because I had that pe- that photo. Sure. And when I was t- there would have been no. It, th- there's no button on the story. And it, if you looked at the picture, you wouldn't know that's what happened. But when you hear right. the story, then you can see that's exactly what I'm shoving his hand away. And but looking back, there, who would I, first of all, who would I have told to yeah. come to my defense? Nobody. And had I gone to somebody and said, you know, this man did something really inappropriate, who would have done anything? They're going to say, oh, it's Zero Mostel. He's the He was the star of the show. The only reason any of us were employed uh, was because it was him. Gosh. And so who would, have, who would have done anything? Nobody. So I never told anybody. I mean, I, it was maybe my friends or something. But, I mean, it wasn't like I reported it or I did anything about it. Or it was just a very unpleasant little thing that happened. And then you go on with your life. But when these women were coming out and saying, well, so-and-so did this and so-and-so and did that, and people are saying, well, why didn't she, you know, why didn't yeah. she report it or why didn't she, you know, because nobody would have cared and nobody would have come to yeah. our defense and nobody would have done anything about it. Wow. Now it's different. In fact, when I was writing my book, I showed that chapter to somebody that was involved with the merchant, somebody powerful, and that story is in the book. It is in that chapter about him grabbing my breast. And this person said, now, this was in 2012, I, mm-hmm. I showed this chapter to him, and he said to me, don't you think Z was just funning? I'm going to drop the microphone. So that tells hey. you now yeah. the yeah. response. Where yeah. we've come. And that would probably have been the person that I would have gone to if I had gone right. to anybody. Yeah, it was just locker room so like, behavior. It, exactly. You know? yeah. So you so you you know that there was there was truly no point. Right. And yeah. I knew that. And and but I mean the fact that that still is the opinion is says something else altogether. Right. But you know, so when those oh. women came forward recently, I totally believe them. Oh, oh yeah. Totally. Yeah. And uh, and so does every other woman 
over 35 yeah. because everyone has experienced something. I just something. read an article uh, uh, literally coming here to this interview uh, in New York Magazine uh, uh, about how women talk about these incidents and men mm. often don't, you know, their husbands or whatever don't often hear about no, it. No, that's, that's right. True. Uh, yeah, and yet yeah. there's a way that women talk about it where mm-hmm. sometimes they laugh about it mm-hmm. but that's just the way of dealing with it but that it's a common yeah. occurrence especially of, of a certain generation and, it, and it's... I don't know. It's just it's well, it's horrifying it's horrible. It's it, horrible, but it's also it's it's such a snapshot of a time. Yeah, and the fact that it's all coming full circle now, yeah. and people are talking about it is is great. You know, yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I grew. We were talking before. I grew up in New York City. I'm. I went to um, a school called Hunter, Hunter which yeah. is Hunter Hunter, yeah. Hunter Elementary and Hunter High School. And I used to run the reunions. I don't know what I was thinking, but I used to run my class <laughs> reunions. And one year, somebody got up we talked about what we were doing and 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 somebody was writing a book and she said i have a question and she said can can is there anybody else here who was molested or in some way um i don't know that the word is assaulted but in some way inappropriately touched on the subway going to school and virtually and hunter was all girls and virtually every single woman in that room raised their hand. Oh my God. Now, I don't think any of us ever talked about it. And I'm not saying anybody was raped or anything terrible, but, but you know, somebody's hand was yeah. in the wrong place yeah. or somebody leaned up against you in an inappropriate, a little too close for con- things like that. Every single woman in that room raised their hand. And we all looked at each other. We were like stunned, but it wasn't something you talked about yeah. because it wasn't uncommon. And it was something you just kind of moved on. It was wow. it was quite shocking. Wow! In fact, she wrote a book about it. Yeah. Oh, did she really? Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. glad. I'm yeah. glad. That, I mean, that she wrote about it. That it's being talked about. That we're yes. That it yes. is yeah. coming. Yeah. And, yeah. and it is different. As when you know, not necessarily full circle, but where it's a dialogue that I'm it's, reading about in my exactly. Magazine, yeah. you know, and it's, it's and it's conversation it that people is, didn't have. And it's important that we do have that conversation. But when when people you know talk about why didn't they come forward. I'm I'm the poster child. Right. I didn't mean to be the poster child, but I am. No. Yeah. Because, you know, did this change my life? No. Was it unpleasant at the time? Yes. Could I have done anything about it? No. Would anybody have cared? No. Yeah. And so you move on. But it didn't make it right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Know? Yeah. And I think that's something that your book does so brilliantly, which is it really does capture... Uh, specific time periods in our industry. And yes. I think it does it so brilliantly mm. and so beautifully. Thank you. And so it's very funny. I mean, the book is very, very funny, but there are so many wonderful moments in there. You're, that, uh, the relationship with the Loud family, mm-hmm. I think is fascinating. It was such, that was so interesting. There was uh, the, the, the show you're talking about, it's a TV show called An American Family, which just recently came back into the public eye because there was a new take on it where yeah. they intercut original. Uh, footage from the seventies um, documentaries, an, an HBO oh. film called yes. Cinema Verite. Cinema Verite, yes. With Tim Robbins, is that? Is that? Uh, I think so. I know yes. James Gandolfini, Tim and, Robbins, and um, um, she's on Broadway right now. Uh, Diane Lane. Diane Lane. Yes. Yes. Jeez. And this is the first reality show. Yes. Yeah. And and they they found it's called An American Family, and they found a family with um, five teenagers living in California, the Louds. And the family thought that their children were talented and that they were all going to become stars. And it was a it was a documentary. It was the the, the film crew literally been, oh moved yeah. into their house, wow. li- lived with them for like six months or something. In the seventies, this is in the early seventies. Wow. Yeah. 
and um, and it was the first time that this had ever happened. And I was I was at Channel 13. I was the press agent for the show, and I became quite friendly with the Louds, and I liked them a lot. They were, you know, interesting, nice, open people who were kind of living through this experience. And as it went on, before it actually began to air, things sort of changed, and what they didn't expect was that the television critics were not just going to review the documentary, but they were going to review their lives. Yeah. yeah. And suddenly they became sort of the poster children for the upper-middle-class, affluent California family where the kids, you know, kind of have every um, right. indulgence and are kind of boring and, <laughs> yeah. you know. And it was – and in the middle of it, the the, the mother and father uh, split. And the son came out. One of the sons I, came out. Yeah. So – it was it was quite shocking. I mean, there's a lot of drama. That, I mean, you my bet. wife and I were on a, a reality show and once, and they had to like help make the drama. But no, that just no, was, this was that right was there. like right there. And, there and what what was interesting was we never knew whether they really became oblivious to the cameras that were there twenty four seven, or whether things were staged for the cameras. Um, we, you know, you, after a while, you didn't know because they the 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 husband and wife who were the film the filmmakers lived with them. They they moved into the house and they sort of became surrogate children, and so it was very incestuous. The whole thing was very incestuous, and yeah. so you you kind of didn't know. And did they know that the son was gay? Did they know the son was going to come out on television? We didn't. Nobody knew. Right? There's no precedent either, and it's not yeah, like because no now we have all these yeah. reality and there's shows, no script. and we know that we, they storyboard. But. It turns out the husband was having an affair, and the wife found out, and she threw him out of the house. You know, all on camera. And they still brought they they broadcasted it. I yep. mean, it was oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was. I had no, you got to no go idea. find it. It's it's called An American Family. And was it Margaret Mead? She she commented upon it later. She she thought it was brilliant, but it was very interesting being in the middle of it because I was the press rep and I oh was the God. person re, you know and so I was kind of between the family who was you know half thrilled to be famous and half not so thrilled right. to be famous because they were getting shot at a lot, and you know setting up press events where they were very happy to you know be the stars of the event and yet they were getting beat up. You know, at the same wow. time, so it was it was fascinating. I don't, I mean, until this recent HBO documentary came out, I always felt nobody ever knew about the. You know, had, yeah. people had forgotten about it because it was it was a long time ago. Yeah. But in fact, that brought it all back into people's consciousness, and it was it was the precursor huh. of all these reality shows. Yeah. You know, it's wow. It, if you have uh, HBO Go, yeah. the movie is on HBO Go for the, free. The Cinema, Cinema Verite, Verite. Yeah. yeah, it's fascinating because they intercut. <sighs> The original series with actors playing the characters. Yeah. So what? it's like reality, reality. <laughs> it was very meta. That idea. Who was like, let's do a documentary TV it, show of this? It's I a mean, documentary great. TV show. It's brilliant. It's really I've never even heard weird. Of such a thing. And they and they pretty much got it right. I mean, they didn't well, get everything right, but they got a lot of it right. And do they it, say where that family is now? I mean, do we even? Know? They're around. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Lance has died. Actually, they, well, there was a there was a follow up. Years later, he did a documentary about, and he. It was was sad was that he, you know, he became this sort of gay icon because he came out on national television. Right. And 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 not many people, I mean, no one did that. And this was, this was in the seventies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so this was really early on in the the story. And then there was a a, a follow up uh, documentary about him and 
the sad thing was that, you know, he was sort of touted in the original series as being this sort of wildly creative, imaginative, you know, kind of, you know, gay icon mm. sort of character. And the, and the truth was that he sort of never did anything. Yeah. Mm. You know, and he really wasn't all that talented. And he wasn't right. all that. But, but he was, you know, he had the flamboyant but he part. He named Lance Loud. Yeah. Lance it. Loud, thank you. And he became sort of famous for being famous. You yeah. know, yeah, it wasn't, sure. he didn't like actually. Like the first reality celebrity in a way. Yeah. And, and, you know? and, you know, coming out on national television and all this stuff. I just can't imagine being known because he came out. Uh, it's well, amazing. you know, it's like the Kardashians. Yeah. You know, they're no. famous for yeah, being yeah. famous, Fam- yeah. and he was sort of famous for being famous. Jeez. And and wow. and sadly, he passed away. Yeah. Um, I assume from AIDS, but I'm not sure. Wow. I think but so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. But um, but he but that was all part of it, and it was really you know it was quite shocking. Mm-hmm. It was quite shocking to see this couple. You know, split up on tele yeah. live on it's television. Real. It's like that's, it was real. Yeah. I mean the 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 image for the show was very interesting the the louds had given uh channel 13 a photograph a family photograph of of all of them a christmas picture or something and the art department decided to make the image of the show this they framed this this family portrait and then they smashed it Yeah, yeah and so the 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 broken glass of the you know the cracked image of the family in the frame was the image for the show oh man and Pat Loud, when she saw it, was livid yeah. because she felt they weren't cracked, they weren't broken, they weren't, you know. And, you know, in her eyes, she had these wonderful children. They were they were all going to be famous. And Channel 13 did this. And, I mean, that was their their artistic choice. And it was – she wasn't happy. She wasn't Ooh, happy no. about that. And, and truthfully, I don't blame her. I mean, oh, she was, yeah, she I, was yeah. right. But that was an artistic decision, and the producers Bold. the producers wanted it, and that's what happened. But yeah, was was interesting. And all of this is chronicled in your book. So tell us, what was the inspiration to write the book? Obviously, you have all of these amazing stories, and everybody always says, "Well, one day I'm going to write a book well, about it." You actually did. I know. I can't believe it myself. What <laughs> happened was, I I would tell my friends all these stories as they were as I was living them, mm. and people would say, "I hope you're writing this stuff down." And I didn't. I didn't write them down at all. And I just I was so busy living it that I kind of didn't. It didn't even occur to me to write them down. Sure. The only story that I wrote down at the time was about Abby Hoffman. Abby Hoffman had written a book called uh, Steal This Book. And a client of mine, Pete Masterson, who wrote Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, commissioned it. And he decided that he was going to make it into a film uh, because he was doing films as well as theater. And one day he said to me, Abby Hoffman has this idea that we're going to do a publicity stunt, and will you, will you help us with this? Now, Abby Hoffman was a fugitive at this time. He was living yes. underground. You couldn't, you couldn't call him on the phone, or you, you couldn't. You, you had to like oh. leave a message or something, and then he would call you if he felt like it. It was all very peculiar. Amazing. And I didn't know how to reach him. I it was nothing to do with me. I was just sort of a, I was a helper in all yeah. this project. So the deal was that. Carlin Glenn, who was Pete Masterson's wife, was starring on Broadway in Best Little Horace in Texas. And the story was that she's at the theater one night and she gets a note from a fan who says, uh, may I come back um, and meet you? And the fan arrives in the dressing room with a huge bouquet of flowers, presents her with the flowers, her, his girlfriend takes a picture, and it turns out it's Abby Hoffman. That was the setup. Okay? So, of course, it didn't just happen like that. but. So the deal was, 
after the after performance one night, Abby and his girlfriend arrive, and we set up this picture, and it's Carlin and this man who we don't know who he is supposedly, and the flowers are sort of blocking his face, and um, and then and then, golly gee, it turns out it's Abby Hoffman. Okay, that's the that's the story. So I my job is to play is to place this story, and what happened was. It was kind of a comedy of errors. I would get it placed in time, and then it would something would have a bigger story would come along, and it would get bounced. So then I'd go to Newsweek, and then they would say yes, and then that would get bounced, and then I'd go to the AP, and the AP would say yes, and then it would get bounced. And because as it was happening, it was so nutty, and it was the whole thing was so crazy that I wrote it down, and so I actually have the the sort of day by day chronicle of this episode of trying to place this stupid story about Abby Hoffman, this famous fugitive, taking a picture in a Broadway dressing room starring my client and roses in it. Okay, so the, <laughs> so the whole stupid story, and it, you know, in the great scheme of things, it's nothing. Right. But as a result of this, I wound up having an FBI file. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which I didn't know I had until much later. And eventually somebody told me how you can get a copy of it, and I got a copy of it, and it's all uh, redacted is that the word? Yeah, with this big yeah. black, like in the movies, with yes. these big lines or yeah. things, and it, you know, it's like Susan Shulman, blank, 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 blank. It's like, and of course, I truly was the innocent in the whole thing because I had no idea. They wanted, they called me and they said, "How do we reach Abby Hoffman?" Well, I really didn't know because I had never been in t- touch with. I was just right. kind of the the handmaid yeah, of you're all the this. Facilitator. And I was the, exactly yeah. not not such a good one. It turns right. out, but although it did it did run, so I I, I did earn oh, my keep. My but it was crazy because it was like I have an F, I had an FBI. Amazing. <laughs> made it. I set up a silly photo with some guy and flowers and Carlin Glenn. And that's, oh, and that story was the inspiration for. <laughs> well, it, it happened that I wrote it down. Yeah. It just happened to be the one story I wrote down. So, um, at one point, somebody said to me, "You know, you really should write a book about this." And I thought, well, and I had a slow patch, and so I started to write the the the, the chapter about the merchant, mm-hmm. and just because it was so um, dramatic, mm-hmm. you know, as they say, when the star dies, um, oh. and I wrote it, and I. Somebody said to me, you know, this is this is really fascinating and it's really good. You should submit this to a magazine. I didn't know how to do that, but I there was a magazine at the time called Show People. Oh yes, oh, I yeah. remember that. Uh, it was a lovely magazine. I it was a, it magazine. was a Time Inc. magazine. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so did I. And I knew somebody that was on the editorial staff, and I said, um, I have this piece. Would would you be interested in seeing it? And he said, Absolutely. And it, I sent it over, and the next thing I knew, it was published. And I thought, oh, this is easy. I, 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 I'm, in a, I'm in a Time Inc. magazine. How did this happen? It was really crazy. I, mean, yeah. I, I thought it was like that's how it happened. It turns out really not how it happened. <laughs> and so it was published. And then from that, it sort of grew into a book. But wow. that's how it happened. Oh, my goodness. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> and where can one purchase this? One. Thank you for asking. One can purchase Backstage Pass to Broadway. And if you're in New York City, it is at the wonderful Drama Bookshop, which yep. was the cause of me getting <laughs> a job with Bill Dahl. It's now no longer in the same location. It's now on 40th Street. It's at the Drama Bookshop. It's also at another wonderful theater bookstore called Theater Circle on 44th Street, which is also a theater maven's <laughs> dream yes. come yeah, true. Totally. And it is available on the website www. Backstage pass to Broadway.com. Backstage pass to Broadway.com. What a clever uh, Good. URL. Yeah. I and love it. if you buy it through there, I would be 
more than happy to sign it <gasps> and inscribe it to anyone who would like it. Yeah. How sweet. Scribe. I might do that. And is there a rumor that there might be another edition coming there out There is. Soon? There is. Actually, there is going to be a second edition. And the second edition has even more stories about it. Love it. About my career. And it includes three new chapters. Ooh. One about working with Mike Nichols. Oh, yeah. One about working with Prince Edward, who is the Queen of England's youngest son. Oh, yeah. And what's the third new chapter? I'm trying to think. I forget. You'll it's have to all buy the book. It sounds great. Yes, yeah. you have to buy oh, the book. But, but also what happened was when I was recently moving my office about a year ago, I discovered all kinds of files that I had lost. Not lost, but I didn't know where they were. And I found all kinds of photos that I hadn't been able to find initially and all sorts of little anecdotes and little funny quotes and things that I had forgotten about. Right. And so the the second edition has a lot of those um, stories. There's a wonderful story in the book about working with the president with with President Reagan, wow. and um, there was a story about setting up a photo with Ronald Reagan and Robert Joffrey and their son, little Ronnie Reagan, as we called him, who's a dancer in the in the junior company at the Joffrey, and I couldn't find the picture. And I had I had photo researchers. I had people searching high and low, and nobody could find this picture. And when I was downsizing the office a couple of years ago, lo and behold, I found there all the is. newspaper clippings. Uh, and so it was kind of the button on the story that I didn't have because yeah. I couldn't find it. Yeah. And lo and behold, now I have the button on the story. So it's little oh. things like that. That's great. I cannot really wait special. to look at the second edition. Oh, it's fun. It's sort of more of the same. Yeah. Fine with me. Anyway, <laughs> bring it. Fine with please. Me. The yes, please buy uh, this book. Buy out. this and book. It's great oh, to see backstage pass to Broadway. To see Broadway from an, another a set of eyes, you know, and another another yeah. job that yeah. maybe you don't always think about. And that is well, actually. Well, people don't even know what a press agent is. And you I know. think hopefully now yeah. they will. Yeah. You know, now well, we're going to you know, show that. You know, it was interesting when I was writing the book. Um, initially, it was quite different. And for one thing, I. Um, imposed my opinion of circumstances. Something would happen. I would tell a story, and I and I would say, "What was she thinking?" Yeah. You know, I would I would editorialize. And at some point, I thought, I don't need to do that. I think the reader should figure that out. Should should make their own judgments on what was she thinking. Yeah. And so I took all of that out. And mm. so so it's very non judgmental. I mean, you you get it. You yeah. get you get <laughs> the if facts something, are enough. <laughs> if if you if something's terrible happening, you get it. Yeah. But but I don't say you know. Well, wasn't she a witch? Right. You know, right. I I let you make that decision. Right. And the other thing that was interesting because I I really had never thought about this was when I initially wrote the book, and I still believe this. The only reason that anyone's going to buy my book is because of the stories about really famous people. And, you know, nobody's buying the book because it's Susan Shulman. They're buying the book because it's about Lauren McCall and Zero Mostel and Bob Fosse and David Merrick, you yeah. know. And so people that read earlier versions said, well, we don't know who's talking. You know, why are you in that room mm. where it happens? Yeah. You know, wh- who are you? I mean, we need to know why you're there. Huh. And that was a really interesting mm. thing because I, I still don't think anybody's buys my book because of me I mm-hmm. think they buy the book because they're, they're stories about really famous people that I've worked right. with over my career and so I had to figure out how much of me needed to be in the book in order to enhance the stories right. give yeah. it context and, and, and yeah. so you understand like and as, as they said you know like why were you there I right. mean we don't know who you are we don't <laughs> know who's speaking 
And right. I thought, well, that's that's valid because, you know, why am I there? Well, right. I'm there because I had a function. Mm-hmm. I had uh, this is why I was there, and so that's why that was an interesting thing to figure out, yeah. um, and one that I hadn't really thought about yeah, very totally. much. You know, it was interesting. Oh wow! Well, and it's it's wonderful, and I cannot yeah. recommend it enough. Oh, aren't and you kind? You are wonderful, and thank you so much for spending Truly. so much time with us. Thank today. you. Um, I'm I've so learned glad. so much. I know <laughs> this is a fantastic. There will be a today. quiz. <laughs> I know. I was like. I'm gonna go home and watch American Family. That's I'm, right. I'm, I'm, yes, <laughs> I'm so and get the book. I'm and so and we didn't even talk about Henry Winkler. My uh, God, the Fonz. Oh yes. So it's, it's <laughs> co- I will. I will just put a little sample in here. There is okay. a, a great chapter in the book about the Fonz mm-hmm. and Susan's relationship with mm-hmm. the Fonz. Mm-hmm. Now you have to buy the book. I'm not going to tell you anymore. Ooh. And neither will Susan. Sounds good. Yeah. Uh, I hope you'll join us again sometime. I would love it. Thank I'm you. so honored to be a legend. Ooh. You are. Yeah. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.